Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and thank you for joining me for part two of my chat with broadcaster and lead singer with Something Happens, the one and only Tom Dunn. If you haven't listened to part one, feel free to go back. It's a lovely, fun episode. But equally, feel free to just continue listening to this episode. With me as host, no episode is ever linear. I tend to hop all over the place like I do in real life conversations. And I hope that you think that's a good thing because I very much want all of my chats with my guests to be real conversations. A listener asked me this week how long I'd known Tom because they thought we sounded like we'd known each other for a very long time. Actually, recording the podcast was my very first time ever speaking to Tom. I guess the fact that Tom and I were born just a year apart and both grew up in Dublin makes for easy conversation because we have an awful lot of references from our past histories and our lives and the music we grew up with, that sort of thing. (laughs) I have to say that chatting to him sparked some really old, long forgotten memories. I don't do prep conversations with my guests before podcasts. I just like to dive right in and see where the conversation takes us. This episode takes us to the point in Tom's life two years ago where he literally almost died as his kidneys failed following heart surgery. Thankfully, he survived and is not only in great form and great health, he is a fantastic storyteller, even when that story involves ICU, kidney failure, heart surgery, hallucinations and post-traumatic stress. So about 10 years or so ago, is yeah. it, you got told you had something like a murmur or something yeah. in a, a bicuspid aorta. 2007. Right. These are dates I find you don't forget. Uh, yeah, we were buying the house I'm sitting in now and I lashed off to do uh, a medical for the uh, life insurance for the mortgage. So it was just one of these routine medicals. Yeah. For Irish life. Irish life. Yeah. That's where I worked for 15 you? years. <laughs> <laughs> I applied to Irish life and they rejected me. Did you? Yes. Really? Oh, my God. Well, you know what? I left school in 79. Yeah. So you left. You're about a year. I left school in 78. Okay, so there's a year between us. I left in 79. I was the youngest of five. And my father had worked in Irish life since he was 18. And his biggest ambition for his kids was that one of his kids would work in Irish life. 
and the other four all tried and didn't get in. For, for people listening, you know, back in the day, you had to do aptitude tests and yeah. little exams to try and get called for interview for jobs. So, yeah, I got that. And I stayed there for bloody 15 years. 15 years. 15 years. How terrible is that? Wow. What a waste. That's some of the reason I can't listen to some songs, etc. <laughs> and um, they sponsored, Arslai sponsored an arts award then right. in 1990. And we won it. We won it. Wow. Yeah, newcomer. So we'd, we'd go to an awards ceremony down in Arslife. Daniel Day-Lewis was there. It was my left foot was out. Right. So I managed to give my acceptance speech and say, you know, I was once rejected by Arslife, but here I am now in Arslife. <laughs> You see, though, there's that rejection, Yeah, yeah. you know, instead of that job in Irish life. Exactly. Actually, that was something I'm jumping around the place, but my listeners are well used to this. So just go with the flow. That reminded me that you studied engineering in UCD. I did, yeah. I actually worked as an engineer. Did you? I thought you told me when we were starting setting up here, you're not techie. Is that different to being engineering? Yeah, there's a thing now. Yeah, engineering. It's mathematical, really, is it? Theoretically, you're going to end up in a kind of management type level in an engineering world. Um, I did love science and I still watch science programs and adore them. But it was the era of computers and I really wanted to be in some way involved with computers. So you go into first year and there's 200 people in the same class. And at the end of first year, depending on your results, you're split up between electronic that everybody wanted to do, electrical, mechanical. So I didn't do great at the end of first year and I ended up in mechanical, which wasn't terribly interested in. And I tried to leave, but there was nowhere to go. So um, I stayed and did it. And then I worked for CIE for a year. All right. Yeah, that was very entertaining. CIE is Corazon for Air and it's our national bus service. We have a lot of listeners yeah. in the UK. So, Well, if anybody is on holidays in Ballina, I recommend <laughs> you stop by the bus station there and admire the mechanical services, such as the bus hoist installed by me. Uh, wow. yeah. The compressor installed by me. So, um, I don't even really know what a compressor is, but uh, yeah. <laughs> pressurized air. So then I did a year yeah, there. No, you don't have to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> then I did a year in Erlingus. Oh, I applied there too. I got there a ground hostess or something, but my father uh, told me that Irish life was a much better job. Yeah. <laughs> you would have got free travel with Erlingus, which is serious. I know, but I got a mortgage at 24 with Irish life. All right. Okay. Well, swings and roundabouts. Yeah, yeah. Erlingus wasn't great crack. Yeah. I didn't really like it. Even though it looks great on paper, I, I was a development engineer. For- yeah, no, they were all the same. They're just kind of corporate jobs. Yeah. I mean, for people listening, it's kind of hard to understand that back in the day when we left school, the pinnacle of success on leaving school was getting a job in the bank. Yeah. You know, it really was. And like, you're one of the few people who would have gone to university around that time. You know, it wasn't common for everyone to go to university. No, it wasn't at all. And it was no. very uncommon for girls to go. You know, I mean, really, there was a, a handful of all the girls in my year, more the boys in, I went to Holy Faith Clontarf and the boys' school was St. Paul's Rohini. So more the boys would have gone. Yeah. And really just the children of professionals. Yeah, it was very, I have to say, it was very unusual for my social background. Um, was it? Yeah, I was the only person in, in the class, James Street, who went, and in my family. Oh, you went to James's? Yeah. Oh, I went to, one of my one of my boyfriends in Irish life went to Jambo. Did he really? <laughs> yeah, Fergie Kyo. Uh, and he he was a singer too, actually. He could mm. sing. Yeah, he went, you know, he didn't have a band band, you know, but yeah. that's what we did. God, we worked in really boring, boring job. 
Well, didn't everybody? Oh, yeah. And we worked to kind of party and go on holidays. Yeah, I listened to the Joy Division book recently as well. And Ian Curtis was in the civil service. So no one thought music was the remotely possible thing to do. You thought, with a bit of luck, if I get a year at this and we get to make an app, I'll be proud of that for the rest of my life. You didn't think you want to make a living. Exactly. So I always wanted to be an actor. I always yeah. wanted to act, you know, and I studied drama from the age of eight and I did all my drama exams with the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. I just exactly what you described that you experienced. I can still remember my very, very first time on stage at the age of eight in a competition, a poetry competition in Father Matthew Hall doing the fesh, standing up there and saying the poem. And then you went backstage, they call you up in groups of 10. You went back, you came out, you did your poem and like, the audience was just full of mammies, hardly even any daddies, you know, and you'd say your poem and the adjudicators sat there and had to listen to 100 kids saying the wow. same poem, you know, and then you'd get called back to say a second poem. So you had to have two prepared, but it had to be the same so that they would be judging, you know, on a par. And I remember then you walk down the front steps and back to where you sat after you performed. And I remember walking down, I still to this day, and this raucous applause and other people's mammies stopping me and going that was amazing really you were brilliant oh incredible i've never wow. experienced that again but that was the <laughs> <laughs> it was because yeah. i remember that going through my head that's not even my mommy and their daughter's up there and they're telling me i was wow, brilliant and it was fantastic. an under 12s competition and i won it but i loved the drama you know i remember the teacher miss o'regan god rest her soul she died very young I remember her coming into the classroom and saying, I'm starting these classes after school and it's called speech and drama. And this is what we do. And I remember running home and saying, I want to do it. And I remember being in the class and probably being the only kid in the class who fully went with every, cause it was all a, a bit arty at that point, you know, be a tree and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I fully went with it. I just loved it. But like you just said, it never entered my head that a human being like me, a regular yeah. person could, be an actor no they were people on a screen and somehow it just actually never entered my head that I could actually pursue it as a career and punk rock was very liberating for that like it made the point that it's more about you and what you have to say and it's not about your musicianship and those skills can follow later that was a real what really got me going even it's funny Tracy Thorne in her book she talks about how when they were offered this tour at U2 but that was the moment where she said, I never signed up for this. This is like me becoming Sade. I'm not Sade. I, I'm a girl who was doing English in college and she and her boyfriend wanted to be in a band. And I can't believe it's gone as far as it's gone. But yeah. there's no way I'm walking on stage and thinking people should be watching me while I'm singing. Like this has yeah. gone far enough. This is it. Yeah. And that's the way we were. We thought like we were. I saw Sade perform in the oh, yeah. um, stadium. The stadium. stadium. Yeah. Saw her in the National Stadium. Saw Rory Gallagher there too. Oh, as well. wow. Nice one. Yeah. But I was stuck behind that pillar. You know, you got cheaper seats. Do you remember there was two big Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, anyway, the medical. Yeah. We should go back there. And uh, I remember I went to it from the gym. I actually was carrying a gym bag. I've been running on the treadmill and all this kind of stuff. So I was fit. And um, the doctor said, you know, there's a murmur there needs to be checked. You know? Yeah. And I was going to one or two doctors had mentioned it to me and I thought it's nothing much, you know, and Alan had had a murmur, you know, and no ill effects. And also the name of it murmur. It just sounds so gentle, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it's kind of the sound it makes. It, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's quite similar to the sound that the thing makes. The blood goes forward and back slightly. Um, so, um, yeah, I was, I was sent off to a cardiologist and straight away he said, yeah, you've got a murmur. Uh, it's a serious murmur. Um, they did more scans. They said it's a bicuspid valve. Your aorta should have three little interlocking flaps. Yours has two. So it's not sealing. So blood is leaking backwards all the time. The aorta is working harder to try and correct this. It's pumping more blood than normal. This is aging the aorta and the aorta is calcifying. And you know, that's not good for your brain either. Is it not? No, no, because your brain depends on your cardiovascular system to provide it with the nutrients and oxygen to function. So if it's malfunctioning, it will be deprived of oxygen and the nutrients. And that's its fuel. Yeah. So that's why one of the animations I've made is why is high blood pressure bad for my brain? Because it is bad. And actually, you know, and it's just to explain. And I just think it's funny. People know a lot about their heart, but they don't know a lot about their brain and how things impact. I think the aorta was actually compensating for this. So I had normal blood pressure. Oh, yes. So so it would be over time. Do you you yeah. know what I mean? So basically what was happening by the sounds of things is, yes, your heart was pumping and doing everything correctly, yeah. but it was putting itself under yes. stress and it wouldn't be able to continue no. at that pace. Yeah, and exactly. So it develops stenosis, which is the hardening of the artery yeah. of, of the aorta. And when it was measured the first time, it was moderate stenosis. And, you know, he was talking that, you know, the valve is down to about three quarters of what anybody else's is. Uh, and that's fine. So he said, work mm-hmm. away. The fitter you are, the better. So don't leave yeah. the gym. Continue to run. Stay as fit you can. So every year I'd go and see Nile. Every year it was fine. Every year it was moderate stenosis. No change. Then he said, you come every two years from now on because it's really, this isn't moving. And he did say when it does move, we're talking surgery. And that was frightening. You know, it was scary. Because mm. I'm trying to figure out the math. You were in your 40s then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it would have been yeah, around 45 or so. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a bit shocking hearing things about your heart at that age. Yeah, it is. So then I don't know what happened to me, uh, but I, I missed a few years. I may have missed yeah. as many as three years. Um, I right. don't know how I did it. I felt fine. I think that might have been the thing that I felt fine. I, do you know what? I, that's something I'm glad you kind of brought that up because I did read that in some of your interviews. And, and I think it's kind of part of what helps us survive. You know, we're adaptable. Yeah. <laughs> Over time, we adapt to things happening to us or to shocking information. And it's, yeah. it, it sort of became your new norm and that it was yeah. okay and it wasn't shocking anymore. And I think no. that happens a lot of people. Yeah. I think that people just become complacent and you've dealt with it initially, the first shock, oh, I'll have to look after this. And then it's, yeah, hey, I'm fine. So I, I would imagine what you did was perfectly normal. Yeah, I would also bump into Niall, the, the cardiologist. He was a huge REM fan. Right. Yeah, so we would just compare notes with bands and I'd meet him out and he'd be you're coming over. And a little bit of me was saying, if there was the least thing wrong with me, he'd be saying, you must come in, Tom. <laughs> you know, right. you must come in. But I wasn't getting any of that. But it was socially. <laughs> you were only chatting to him socially. <laughs> so you would expect, though, you know, <laughs> or something, you know. Um, I was just bouncing along. And, and uh, in 2018, I did think mentally inside and some intuitive level, I felt something had shifted. And uh, that was, I don't know if you remember, a particularly beautiful summer. And we were swimming with the girls all the time, all the time. And I started to find, I was thinking, will I have a scar? I started thinking, will I have a scar? And the next time I'm on a beach, will I have a big scar? You know? Right. And this was starting to go into my mind. And then Fela was gone that year. And um, I drove down to Limerick and then I drove to Kilkenny. And in Kilkenny, I was wiped 
uh, wiped. And there was Tired. a little bit of a scene where Audrey was saying to me, you're being so rude to my mother, you know. And I wasn't, I just wasn't responsible. You were just irritable. I was, I was just dead. All right. And going out to dinner, I, I wanted to say, can we not go to dinner? Can I go to bed? This was half six in the evening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got through it and she was saying, you were fantastic crack tonight. Thank God we came down to Kenny, you know. Um, Does she feel suitably guilty about that now? <laughs> yeah. The, the next day I said to her, I don't think that was normal. I think that was on. She yeah. said, if you don't go to the doctor, you know, there'll never be a warm meal in this house again. Yeah. So I went back to see him just when Fado was getting closer. And um, he normally was just very uh, cheery and, you know, off the cuff with me, but he was definitely different with me and kept me waiting, which is very unlike him. And I could see people coming in after me and then going into him. And I was thinking, I was here first. What's going on? Here? Yes. Yes. You know? So he said he wanted to talk to me. So uh, we talked about Fela and he said, like, the bands are untouched by age. And they tapped his little result and said, things have shifted here, you know. The readings are gone, you know, up a lot. And he said, it might be a good idea just, you know, to see the surgeon. Now, the way he said this, it came across to me as just a kind of long-term plan. Get to know the man who at some point in the far distant future will have to do something to you, mm. you know. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, no problem. And his secretary kind of said, see the surgeon, have you? You know, and I was like, oh, that's fine. Just, you know, long term, no problem. You know, don't be worrying about it. So then I went to the surgeon, October the 13th. I know the date's off by heart now. Yeah, yeah. Did a CT scan for him. And, uh, but I've been asked to be on Dances with Stars. And I know. Oh, and yeah. I, yeah. And I didn't really want to do it, but the girls wanted me to do it. Right. Yeah. Well, that'd be and great the things crack. we do for the kids. You know, yeah. Great crack, da. You know, <laughs> so I was back in my mind thinking it'd be a great way to get fit. So I said, yeah. I'd love to get fit. I think that's why most people do it, isn't yeah. it? So I sat with the surgeon, you know, and all that was going through my mind was, would I be able to get fit for Dances with Stars? You know, so I said this to him. I said, you know, I've been approached. And he was looking at me like I had two heads, right? And he's the tapping the results seems to be a thing, you know. And he said, uh, these figures, Tom, these figures, with what's in front of me, um, you have a 70% chance of being dead within two years. And I was going, what was that? Just <laughs> say that again. And I said, so you'd need to see me, uh, you know? And he said, yeah. I, and uh, he said, within weeks. I need to see you within weeks, Tom. So I said, oh, Christ. So I kind of poo-pooed him a little bit and said, can we push this out till after Christmas? Just I want to have Christmas. I want to have Wheelands. That's what I want. I wanted to play Wheelands. Didn't want right. to do that. Yeah. And he was very reluctant. He said, yeah, okay. Okay. And then I was ringing Niall, the cardiologist, and I was saying, Jesus, you know, he's a laugh a minute, isn't he? The surgeon. <laughs> What's the story with him? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I was saying like, God, Niall, <laughs> you were, you know, very relaxed. He's talking to me about valves. He's saying, what valve type do you want? Mechanical or tissue, you know? And uh, I just, I think I was just not quite taking on board no. how serious it was. So the surgeon had said, if you get any chest pains, any chest pains, you must immediately go to any. So I had chest pains by Friday. That was a Wednesday, I had chest pains. This was stress, you know, but I went to any. Yeah. And I was kept in. And, and they were saying, like, this is serious now. And uh, it is stress this time. But we're putting you on beta blockers. And, you know, you have a condition. and You're going to have to sort this. So Jim was doing it. The, the surgeon was doing his rounds. And, and he said, I'll get you in as soon as we can. So it became November the 14th. It was the next date. <laughs> And that was, that was like the phony war, you know, it was, it was very surreal. 
Um, and I was out to what buy. What did you call it? The, pho- the phony, phony war. war. You know, it's like, oh. you know, when, when Germany invaded Poland and England declared war and then nothing happened. Oh, uh, right. Okay. It was like I had this coming towards me, but I was still walking the dog and going for swims. And, right. Okay. And fine, basically. But this date was coming. And the thing surgeons will say to you is that it's like being hit by a car. So you're fine today. Tomorrow you're going to wake up finding you've been knocked down and you're in great discomfort and there's a lot going on with you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So that was stressful and loads of it is tough, you know. It was, it was yeah, I, I don't own pajamas. And I had, to buy, I had to buy something to wear in hospital, you know. Didn't want the kids to know about this. You know, I had to kind of keep that from them. How old were your kids at that They stage? were at that stage, what are they now? 12. They were uh, 10 and 12. Okay, so they're still very young. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, we kind of quietly, I hated this time. And I have to say, as I look back on the whole experience, that's nearly my least favorite part of it. Okay. Uh, you know, going off to buy an electric shaver that you'll need an electric shaver, all this kind of stuff. Um, hated it. And then went for an Indian lunch, Audrey and I, and then checked into the hotel. It, it felt like a hotel, you know, it was over in the beach. You just said checked into the hotel. I did, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> yeah, what it felt yeah. like. I arrived at the it reception does. desk and I said, Tom Dunn. And then I have to say, there's a thing which really I'll take to the grave. You're no longer Tom Dunn, you're Thomas Dunn. And right. you're giving your date of birth about every five minutes to everyone you mm. meet, you know, until 461, until 461, just to everybody, you know. And uh, that was very surreal as well. So the nurse then, the, the admissions nurse, she certainly communicates with you that you're in a serious world now. That, that goes across, you know. Right. There's things to order, like when you come and visit them, don't come alone. You know, you're going to get a shock. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, went in, went through all the tests. or you did, They did loads of extra scans on you and, and shave your chest and stuff. And uh, and then just you had a, a sleeping tablet and woke up and uh, Audrey was there and a man came and said, uh, I will bring you down safely and I'll bring you back safely. And uh, that was Thursday morning about 8.30. And I went down. I vaguely remember being introduced to the anaesthetist. And the next thing I was waking up the following Wednesday. Yeah. So I had no idea. I just um, I had no idea how much time had passed. I'd have these dreadful nightmares. They, they really were. Oh, awful. And, and I'm reading about this guy, a friend I know, um, has been through COVID hell in, in England. And he's talking about the nightmares and feeling he was tricked, feeling he, these people were trying to kill him, that they were all exactly the things that, that were going on in my nightmares. So um, I woke up with somebody saying to me, would you like some ice cream? Which is a very nice way to, to wake up anywhere, you know. 
but because uh, I've been in and out of, of consciousness so much, I didn't really know if this was real. That was, that was really, you know, there was still a chance this was just another, you know, brighter moment in a nightmare. So over her shoulder, I could see a glass of water and it was, there was condensation on it. It, it looked like the nice thing to work. Because you can't actually drink when, you, when you're in ICU. They just, they just wet your mouth with a sponge. Right. Which isn't very satisfying. So I was looking at the water and I just I thought, I'll risk it, I'll ask, you know. That's asking to see if these are real people. <laughs> <laughs> so could I have a glass of water, you know? Yes, yes. It's passed over. And I thought, this is it. I am, I'm back. This I actually am back. The nicest yeah. glass of water ever tasted. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. So then she was saying, like, we're going back on the ward today. Um, okay, good, yeah. Then in a wheelchair and just accepting it, you know, not even thinking about it. And then yeah. getting to just at the door of my room, I can see my room that I'm going to, which is the room I checked into on the first night in the hotel. And um, a nurse suddenly stops me, a young nurse. Come on, come get up there now and we'll try and see if you can walk, you know. So uh, that bright cheeriness, you know. Um, so yeah. I couldn't, walk, I couldn't walk two feet, but I gave it a go. You know? And then she said, you'll be doing laps of this now in two or three days. So it's funny, but everything seemed very positive at that point, you know. I felt I will be doing laps within two or three, yeah. you know, and I was delighted to get back into the room. It could have been the drugs. <laughs> I'm sure you I'm hallucinating now. The hallucinations <laughs> were spectacular. Yeah. Uh, there was a party going on in the next room all the time, singing and dancing. And I'd say to people, what's the story on the party? <laughs> I just <laughs> see these blank expressions, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> It could be delirium with the serious infection. It could yeah. well be, you know. I thought they were lying to me. And there is a part. <laughs> so as I was able to move a little bit, I made my way out into the corridor. And I could see there was no party going on. I could see right. somebody would be reacting. And, you know, there isn't a party. But the party was very real. And it was Audrey's dad yeah. that was the main culprit at the party. And <laughs> there were glasses. And, you know, well, we have one more for the ditch. And all that kind of thing. <laughs> and people singing songs and Audrey there is as a young Audrey with her young sister, you know? And so it was, it was a McDonald's family do that I was listening yeah, to. Yeah. Um, yeah. There were real songs to the point where I Googled one of the songs and it was a, yeah. a, a World War II song. That's mad. <laughs> do you know what you will find fascinating? It's your brain. That's why I love yeah. the brain. Cause it's what your yeah. brain is doing. So two things. I did an episode of this podcast with neuroscientist Adrian Owen. He's an OBE, right? And he studies consciousness. So his patients, his participants are people who are in a vegetative state. Yeah. So you might find the episode interesting because I go across sort of his career because he actually made this discovery that a lot of people who are thought to be in a vegetative state. Yeah are actually conscious and aware. It's like a little history of neuroscience because when he started, he started over 30 years ago. So you can actually see what, as the technology grew, he was able to develop tests with MRI scanners and EEG and all that to actually tap in. So a few of the patients he studied actually came, you know, came back to consciousness um, and could recollect some of the things and some of the issues that you're saying. His book is called Into the Grey Zone. So I'd say you'd love his book Anyway, and you might find the episode interesting, but there was one funny moment in it where a thing that people do, you know, when people are in comas and they say, what's their favorite song? What's their favorite song? You know, bring it in and people bring it in and keep playing, you know, whatever the song is. One of the patients, it was a woman and she was a Celine Dion fan. 
And apparently when she came to, the first thing she said was, if I ever hear Celine Dion again. <laughs> she could hear the whole time. It was like just this permanent torture. I had in, in my dream, I had one of the nurses knew I was in music and was deliberately playing crap music to me. <laughs> no. Yeah. How do you know it was deliberate? She'd say it. No. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, there's That's loads so of funny. Oh, different layers in those dreams. They were dreadful. God. I have from my personal life and experience when you said there about the beacon, my mum became delirious and very unmanageable very suddenly as a consequence of an acute kidney infection, which is quite a common trigger. You know, it's is something it? that happens. Oh, it happens much more commonly than yeah, it my, should. My kidneys failed. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And yeah. I would say a lot of the you were having a delirium, actually, you know, mm. when you're saying hallucination. So basically what happens is if you get a severe infection and a kidney infection, the brain can dehydrate and cytokines interfere with your brain's ability to function. And so your brain just completely malfunctions. So essentially, that's what happened. To my mother, I mean, I had been talking to her in the car on the way to work and she said will you meet me for coffee today and I said I can't I'm in meetings all day mum but tomorrow's Saturday I'll meet you and I was in Trinity and when I went into Trinity I have a brother that kind of had lived at home with my parents even into his 40s and he rang me and he said mom's going crazy I need help I need help mom's going crazy because he would mm. just wouldn't have known what to do anyway oh she was screaming and wanted to leave the house but she wasn't dressed like, I mean, literally that kind of quick. So I was actually working with a geriatric psychiatrist. I shared an office with him at that time. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cancel meetings if you go home. And I explained literally what had happened. And he said, get her to give you a urine sample. It sounds like she's a really acute kidney infection and she'll need to go on antibiotics. And it transpired she'd been. And this is something I'm passionate about saying to older people. We often think that a signal of a serious infection is a temperature, right? A high temperature. Mm -hmm. But as we get older, we lose the ability to mount a temperature in face of some infections. So you can have a very serious kidney infection and not be aware. Okay. And what happens is, and what had happened with my mother was she was getting frequency of urination. Yeah. So she stopped drinking water because she felt she couldn't go out the house without needing to pee. All right. So that doubly affected it. So her brain became completely dehydrated, very serious infection and very obstreperous. It was impossible possible to control or she just developed this huge will and the only way that I could get her to hospital was tell her that I was going to take her to a really fancy hotel for a break and I brought her over to the beacon and we got her in to the hotel it was the only thing that I could do but then she was there for about six weeks she ended up being in hospital for about six months you know she had serious delirium but a lot of the things that you're talking about in that particular hospital, music just took hold and she would just sing nursery rhymes for hours and hours on end. Weird, isn't it? Hours on end. And she would be up dancing jigs. And eventually, I remember another time then when she was moved to a different hospital, she'd been made the CEO of the hospital and they were taking her in a spaceship that the hospital had just bought. And we were able to track it back to she'd been taken up for an MRI scan. But that's what her brain was trying yeah. to make sense. Yeah. They've taken me up to the top. So it turned around that the MRI scanner was on the top floor. And so that became being CEO of the hospital nice. and being sent off. And, uh, you know, it's kind of really interesting stuff. And then one of the things you said earlier when you were saying something niggled, you know, something niggled that you knew there was mm. something amiss and you started yeah, thinking about what would I be like with the scar yeah. I think that was your brain telling you I think that was your brain yeah. that what I'm talking about that brain gathering all the pieces of information that you didn't particularly notice but it was noting and going mm, something here something here something here yeah. and the scar 
we need to think about this surgery thing because yeah. it's literally just taking the information and making a decision or trying to force a decision yeah. for you. Well, I suspect that's what was happening. What, what's the thinking then? Because when I came back after it, um, it was very emotional after it. And mm. I only needed to think about it and, and it had become very emotional. And I remember I did the Late, late Show. Um, I was very emotional just before going out. I didn't want to go out. But then I managed right. to get a handle on it and, and go through and, and not be emotional. I didn't want to be emotional on camera. Um, but the, the idea that I, because I've been thinking about this a lot since, yeah, I, I kind of feel like my body had an incredible trauma. And if you yep. think about it, you know, they opened my chest. Imagine yep. open that out. They stopped my heart and, yep. and operated on it, replaced a piece in it, replaced three pieces in it uh, while he was in there. And then put everything. My brain must be going, what on God's earth is happening to me here? And must have some way to try and process that afterwards. I mean, there, there must be a level of post-traumatic shock that goes with that. Oh, absolutely. So stress was first studied in the context of illness. Yeah. So we think about stress as more a psychological thing. It's physiological, but it's also psychological. I mean, it really doesn't matter whether a threat or a stressor is real or imagined. The stress response will kick off. But it was initially studied in the context of illness because seriously ill people, your body is put under stress and your brain is put under stress. So your brain, essentially, it's really rather interesting. I find it fascinating anyway, but we can talk about our brain uh, us as having three brains. Okay. We don't, they're integrated, but from an evolutionary perspective, we have three brains. So the first part is your brain stem, which you'll have heard about from watching. Yeah. And it's called the reptilian brain. It's the oldest part of the brain. Okay. It is completely unconscious and it is responsible for keeping you alive. It is responsible for your breathing, your heart rate, your digestion, things you don't actually have to think about. Okay. okay. If that's damaged, you're screwed, right. basically, unless you have access to a life support machine to do those things for you. OK, you don't have to think about those things. The next part of the brain to evolve was the emotional brain. Um, we call it it's the limbic system. Really, to see it, you'd have to turn the brain upside down. It's in there, you know, yeah. under the, the crinkly stuff. And that's often referred to as the emotional brain. It houses your amygdala, which processes the stress response and the fear response, the hippocampus, which actually is involved in learning and memory and really responsible for your emotions. And again, it is unconscious and unthinking. Then the last part to evolve is the crinkly bit that you tend to think of in your brain. And that's really the part that's the thinking brain. It's the neocortex, neo meaning new. And it's where all our complex conscious thinking activities occur. So your brain is responsible for maintaining homeostasis. It's responsible for every single system in your body. And it is responsible for keeping you alive and ensuring that whatever resources it has available to it do that and then allow you to do all those other thinking things on top of it. But if you're going to be under stress, like, you know, pulled open mm. and your heart being bypassed literally and whatever, the primary thing is going to be using this brainstem. It's going to be about keeping you alive and yeah. all resources have to go into keeping you alive. And that's going to be a huge stress. And I think that then can ultimately place a strain on the other parts of your brain. So you're not going to think clearly. I think that's what's happening really in a way with COVID, with people with long COVID. Um, a lot of them are experiencing brain fog. And really that's not unusual after any sort of serious illness like sepsis, people will have brain fog for maybe up to a year 
afterwards for lots of reasons. There'll have been inflammation, immune response, etc. But also, if you think about it, the body has been put under huge stress. Your brain has to focus on keeping you alive and really remembering where you had your keys or being able mm. to think straight are not important yeah. in that context. And so on top of the inflammation and those kind of issues, there will be a resource issue yeah. at play that the focus and um, you saying that you're emotional I mean it seems perfectly understandable to me that you would be emotional after something like that in that emotional part of the brain the really interesting thing that happens when the acute stress response kicks off right so the acute stress response is designed to save our life you know fight or flee and in your context the stress in this was a serious yeah. surgery you know and it does that but in an acute situation, and it's easier for me to explain if I do something like the standard, you know, being mugged on a dark alleyway or whatever. In um, an acute situation, memory is enhanced, okay? So that you remember not to go down that alleyway yeah. again or not to do that thing again. So there has to be some of that happening in your situation, you know, yeah. that some sort of issue is happening to saying, no, that was really bad. That was yeah. really serious. I can't ever go down that way mm -hmm. again. So that has to be happening at some level in what you're doing. But then when stress becomes chronic, so usually when an acute situation passes, your thinking brain, so the information about a stressor comes into your amygdala, the part of the brain that handles the stress response through two routes, a fast route, it goes straight to the amygdala so you can respond, unthinking, save your life, jump out of your way of the car or get down if there's a gunshot or whatever. And then there's a slower route where it goes to the amygdala, but first it goes to your thinking brain, to your frontal cortex, which has bi-directional connections with every other part of your brain. So we can see the full context mm. of what is going on. Okay. okay. And makes a decision. Yes, there is a gunman over there. Stay down, keep the stress response going because we're going to maybe have to fight or run away here. Or that was a car backfiring false alarm, let's yeah. calm down that stress response. So what happens if stress becomes chronic is essentially neuroplasticity becomes enhanced in your fear center. So your fear center starts to grow <laughs> and starts to dominate, actually. So what then happens also is your hippocampus, the memory part, neuroplasticity is suppressed. So that mm. starts to shrink. It's also suppressed in your frontal lobes and that starts to shrink. So then what happens is instead of your rational brain overriding your reflexive brain, your emotional brain, the reverse starts to happen and your emotional brain starts to override your rational okay. brain. And I suspect yeah. that maybe what you were experiencing was yeah. just this fear, yeah. this fear. Oh, my God. And the thing is, it does not matter whether there's any real stressor there or not. Yeah. So really experience in any form of trauma. That's why if kids experience trauma in early childhood, they can have a really maladaptive stress response. Yeah, they can respond too quick or too big or whatever. Does that make sense to you yeah. as to what yeah. may have happened? Yeah. And I think in understanding that, that's why I'm passionate about what I do. And actually, that's what this podcast is about. It's talking about real life stuff, but trying to get a handle on it from a way that actually can help people cope. So you're kind of going, why was I feeling so emotional? Well, that's it. Mm. That was put under stress. So actually, really, what you need to do is really get those back in line again. Mm. And that may mean you have 
have to work with somebody else because yeah. at that point, your emotional brain is ruling the roost. Yeah, I think that was part of the plan. And I signed up for um, cardiovascular physio, which is brilliant in UCD every Tuesday. And that was going great on a treadmill and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, Karen was saying to me, now you probably will need to talk to you know, a psychologist because you, know, you, mm-hmm. you will have elements of post-traumatic stress from this. And then COVID arrived, I'm afraid. Oh. And that is where that stays. You know, that was literally the oh. last year. So that's tough. Yeah. Yes. No, it would make perfect sense to me. I read in one of your articles where you said, do you think you had a little bit of post-traumatic stress? Yeah. And, you know, I don't think there's such a thing as a little bit. You have uh, yeah. some sort of level of post-traumatic stress. I can tell you what that is. Um, it comes when things are particularly good and things are never better than when Sky, who's uh, 12, reaches up to hold your hand. That is yeah. the most beautiful thing in the world. And you just get this little, this land, this this will be oh, over, this will be gone. Right. You know, it just goes through your mind, you know, and it's it's powerful, and it, you know. It's, oh, that's terrifying. It stops you enjoying something. Um, yeah, you think, yeah. I'll remember this before I die. It will come, you know. Oh, so that, and it will come to all of us. Yeah, it will. It just it, it will. And, and and I should say to the listeners that you've been given an all clear now. Your heart is oh, fixed. The, this was the most incredible. When I went to him a year later, you'd go for a year follow up. They found a tiny little lump on one lung. I know that sounds dreadful. Oh, no. I know, I know. I know. They'll find a lump in 50% of CT scans. Okay. So you, okay. you, you get little lumps. And uh, I think 97% of them are benign. So the, the statistics are all in your favor. In your favor. But they have to check it in a, year, a year's time. So when I, I never told Audrey that. So when I was going back, I was thinking the lump as well. So he said, the lump hasn't changed. Okay. So he said, I need to have one more scan of the lump and then we can write that off. That is no, no longer. But he said, on top of that, the valve is perfect. Brilliant. And I said, what about the 12-year thing? Because you kind of said there might be a 12-year life scan. And he said, I'm not in this case. He says, I, I won't be seeing you again. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, I know. Sensational. So yeah. I danced yeah. into the room after that. Oh, uh, you know, do you know what? My mother-in-law had a triple bypass when my eldest was about two or three. And it was only in hindsight, we looked back at some videos that Christmas before she went into hospital suddenly, like, you know, it was really one of those. And I think they were going in to do a double and ended up doing a triple or whatever. And she was a smoker. She looked really ill. At that time, my parents and Dave's father were all alive and really, really healthy. And <laughs> she was close to death, you know, and I, if I think back at it, it's about 28 years ago. My parents are both dead. Dave's father is dead. She turns 90 this year. <laughs> You know? Yeah. I mean, it literally just, she never looked back from a heart perspective. She's been in and out of hospital for a little thing, you know, osteoarthritis, breaking things. This last year during COVID, and she hasn't even got COVID. Fantastic. (laughs) So, I mean, it is amazing. I think you can be very lucky when these things are found. But just going back to that thing, because that's tough. I'm a health psychologist. I'm not a one-to-one, you know, I'm not a counselling psychologist, but I think it helps to just understand because that's what I want to do is if you understand what's actually going on in your brain, it's far easier to then switch it up to get back to where you want to be. So I really do just think it is that emotional, that fear center in your brain just over responding. And really, you know, you're in control of your thinking. So when that happens, you can, you know, if you just even switch it up and say, gosh, there's that thought again that I'm having. Absolutely. That's related to that. I need to start switching into that. Mm -hmm. Isn't this fab that my daughter is holding my hands? Mm -hmm. That's just cool. 
Yeah, totally. Do you know? And it really is just about retraining mm. your brain, and it will take a while. And but I still would say, if you get the opportunity to do proper therapy with someone, yeah, no, I will do take it because yeah. you need to have those tools because you don't want to stress. There's nothing wrong with stress when it's an appropriate response. You need stress in your life to rise to challenge. You need stress, that stress response to go on stage, you know, to be excited about stuff, to get out of bed in the morning. That's why it evolved. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Um, and you need that. But when it becomes poorly managed and chronic, and if you're kind of constantly feeling, you know, if it's popping up mm. at good moments, which is really rather interesting. Yeah. Like I tend to be someone who cries when good things happen. Do you know, it's kind of funny, you know, if someone wins a competition and you see them, their dreams yeah. going through, Um, And that seems to be something that's happening for you. And I suppose it's a relief. There's probably two things. It'd be hard for it to be that it's a relief. (gasps) I'm still here. But also then the negative. I think also the fragility of it goes through my mind, you know, and the fleetingness of it as well. Life. Yeah. I think that did come home to me. Um, I think everyone, it's just ingrained in you, instilled in you that, you know, if somebody gets shot, it'll be the guy beside you, you know, it won't be you. Oh, yeah, yeah. We we, we all feel immortal. Yeah, it'll be grand. It, it will never be us. And that's why we tell stories. You know, our whole lives, that's how we make sense of the world. We tell stories about what's happening. And, and we frequently, when something bad happens to somebody else, we make up a story so that it couldn't possibly exactly. have happened to us. Yeah, they weren't careful. They smoked. They weren't careful. Yeah, that no, no, no. Sure. What were they doing walking down that road? Yeah. No, nah, I'd never do that. It's just sort of mm. part of who we are, but we are in control of that narrative. Yeah. So we can kind of change those things up a bit. And I think it's a rare occasion when, and that's why I was interested really t- in talking to you. It is a rare occasion to be faced directly with your own mortality. Mm, certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to come out the other side and be able to join like one of the things in therapy and maybe this is another thing I kind of feel it's my mission to get you writing again but actually that is sometimes a way to really explore those mm. you know to kind of get them out of your yeah. head yeah. I know it doesn't sound like a brilliant topic for something but I actually think it could be a really brilliant topic for song you know exploring all that through writing I think that could be a really, really, you know, I mean, it is, you you may find you go to therapy and that's actually what they suggest. So it's something you can kind of get ahead on the game. No, no, seriously, that is a way is to to kind of work through things. Yeah. There's another moment too. um, We swim in Sandy Cove um, quite a bit, you know, in the freezing cold, freezing cold. Uh, We've done it throughout winter. Um, I live in Clontarf and I see people swimming in the cold all the time. Yeah. Great thing to do. But it's just stopped now, but up to about four months ago, they were still at that age where they get afraid in the water. So they come right in beside me, to, you know, and every time they do it, I just go, this is as good as life gets, as it you gets. know, and yeah. the sun is on the water. The water may be freezing, but the sun is on the water. These two are just so small and so dependent on me. And so yeah. I just go, oh. I'm determined to get a song out of that. Determined to capture that moment. That is just this. Yeah, as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, you know, I hate to tell you this, but the teen years are coming and the teenage. Ah, uh, yeah, no, as I say, it doesn't happen anymore. Like that she, right. he was 14. She won't go with me now. She goes, Yeah, yeah. Friends. Oh, stop. Mine How used about... to walk, you know, it's like you were the queen because they <laughs> walked I, a few steps. If I walk <laughs> near her, if I go for a swim myself, she goes, Dad, go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah, come yeah. near me. But actually might help you through. I do have another episode of the podcast on the teenage brain because the teenage brain is phenomenal. It goes through a whole 
period of trans it actually remodels itself from back to front and when you understand that you yeah. understand why they are so irrational why they can't assess risk why they keep making the same mistakes it really i wish i'd known it yeah. when i was kind of raising my teens although mine weren't too bad actually they were pretty cool uh, kids but i think gosh oh i really do look forward to reading your book i really look forward to new songs i honestly think that it really could help you through that and, and like really if you think about it and maybe it'd be a nice way to roundly end this is to come back to parachute that the lyrics of that song right that song is the most joyous song yeah. you just want to get up and dance but i'll let you explain it but it really is about breaking up absolutely yeah it is as as was so much of that album yeah i i was breaking up with somebody and they didn't really want to to break up with me and i was just trying to tell them you'll be fine out there you'll be fine on your own you know you're a beautiful young woman, you know, head, <laughs> head out there now and have the crack, you know, and we'll always be friends. Don't be worried. Yeah, but it's, it's so much nicer than it's not you, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that breakup line. <laughs> it was a bit of. Or not being told. Yeah, was it was a bit of that, was it? Um, you know, I think both of us being at a point where you needed to jump out of the airplane, you know, and you needed to mm. see what was out there and you weren't going to experience life until you did. And, you know, um, you were going to have to take flight. That was just, you're at that point in your life where you had to take flight. So that was the message. And he here you are again at that point in your life where you have to take flight. You have to jump in and write those songs. Yeah. You seem to be at that point in your life all the time. In fairness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a one-off moment. It's a recurring theme. You know, Tom is so right. It's not a one-off thing. We have the opportunity to go out there and experience life, to live life to the full every day. I really do hope that Tom writes that song about his daughters and all those other songs I suspect his brain is bursting with. Is there something you really want to do but are afraid to? What's stopping you? If it's fear of failure, well, then just go for it. You know, failure is just a part of learning. Failure is only a bad thing if you see it as the end result rather than part of the learning that life is. If it's fear of what others might say or think, well, you know what? Feck them. It's your life. We all only get one life. So just go for it. If it's something else that's stopping you, maybe something physical or financial barrier, for example, then spend some time looking at those barriers and see if you can make a plan to remove those barriers or move them a little bit or modify what you want to do in some way. You know, maybe it just means that those barriers are temporary and that you can set a plan in motion to still work towards what it is you want to do, but that it may take a little bit longer. Is there a single step that you could take today that will take you one step closer to whatever it is you want to do? Even the longest journeys happen one step at a time. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. I will include a link to the animation that explains why high blood pressure is bad for your brain that I mentioned in my conversation with Tom. Everyone should get their blood pressure tested regularly. 
please do share the video with anyone that you know who needs to hear that message. And go get your own blood pressure tested. It really doesn't matter what age you are. Most pharmacies and chemists offer a free service now. Please do follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan. I'm new over there and trying to build up some followers. You'll be rewarded with pictures of my cute dogs as well as more brain stuff and bits and pieces from my life. Thank you so much for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.